From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. After each school shooting, questions abound. Why, how, and how to stop them? Journalist Dave Cullen has taken on those and other questions in his definitive books, first about Columbine, then Parkland. Now, after the attack in Texas, he's examining the misunderstood history of gun control and the movement's future. Then, even when people experiencing homelessness get housing, it doesn't necessarily end tensions in the neighborhood. There are two big questions right now about the city center. Who is it for and who gets pushed out? And later, a school desegregation case in Colorado nearly lost to history. For this to have taken place in the San Luis Valley in 1914, I thought, why don't we know about this? This is incredible. Hi, this is Kate Celisti from Lyons, Colorado, and I am thrilled to be able to support CPR for the fabulous classical music that I just love and our wonderful coverage of both local and national news. This is Andrew in Boulder. I talk about your stories every day with friends, family, and people in my office and want to continue to support you guys as best I can. Members help make it all possible. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. In the wake of two school shootings, Columbine and Parkland, journalist Dave Cullen wrote books to add to our understanding of the attacks, the attackers, the victims, and the survivors. 2009's Columbine examined the killer's motives and preparations, shattering long-standing myths at the same time. 2019's Parkland was subtitled Birth of a Movement about the students behind the Never Again hashtag. Of course, it's too soon to write a book about the bloodshed in Uvalde, Texas. So much is still unknown. But Dave Cullen is working on a national magazine piece about the evolution of the gun control movement, its failures, its successes, and some of the myths we have about guns in this country dating back to the Old West. He joins us with a preview. And hi, Dave. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me under these awful circumstances, as always. Indeed. I'll ask about some of this new reporting momentarily, but I do want to start with something that's been, I think, particularly discouraging for Coloradans. After Columbine, the lesson for police was when there's an active shooter, you engage immediately. You don't wait for reinforcements. You might even pass victims on the way, anything to stop the attacker. And that was not the approach, apparently, in Texas, where 19 children and two teachers were murdered. I wonder what you make of the police response. It was just horrifying and disgraceful. Right. The active shooter protocol. Um, I, 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 a lot of the uh, survivors actually, they, they take some solace, some that I uh, know from the fact that you know, they lived through this so that other people wouldn't have to. We learned some things from it. The active shooter protocol was developed and it saved so many lives in so many places and then just just not here. And there, there's an additional echo that apparently we're still, well, they're, they're kind of covering it up and not participating. But uh, what appears is that it, it possibly one really bad commander stopped everyone from trying to do this. At, at Columbine, a lot of the SWAT members were almost in revolt from Sheriff Stone and saying, we've got to go in. Um, and here, it, it, 
you know, you get 19 cops in the school and apparently one guy holding them back. I want to say that the attack about a year ago at a Boulder King Supers demonstrates that it can be highly effective to engage the shooter immediately. Uh, Officer Eric Talley went in without backup and uh, no doubt saved lives while sacrificing his own. I'll note that there have been 20 mass shootings since Uvalde, according to the Gun Violence Archive, uh, the latest apparently at a hospital in Tulsa. But Dave, let's get to some of this history you've uncovered, the insight you've gained into the gun control movement. And I want to start with a revelation you had about the Old West, uh, kind of perception versus reality. What is this? Yes, you know, so, so many, uh, so much of our mythology is based in a couple ideas which happen to be exactly backwards. Um, you know, concerning the Old West, uh, we've got sort of two ideas. Uh, one is that uh, guns are inevitable because they're part of our heritage from the Old West and they're never going away. And the other one that gun control is antithetical to that tradition. Both of those are actually backwards. Uh, our gun deluges, where we got most of these, were um, the effects of our biggest wars, especially the Civil War and um, and World War II. That's where most of them poured into the country. Um, I- I- as far as uh, the Old West, that's actually when we have the most strict gun control in our history, and by the way, the most effective. Um, most, to, and this is also interesting, uh, it was strictest in the areas most opposed to it right now, in the South and West, particularly the small towns and rural areas, where most small towns, um, they had regulation that you had, that no no guns were allowed in town. And if, you, if you've seen many Westerns, there's a, there's a common trope of the gunslinger coming into town, first thing he does is report to the sheriff, turn in his gun, and mm. he gets a, actually gets a token to hold on to to get it back. That's actually real. That actually is how it worked in most of these towns. Um, guns were forbidden. Um, and it worked great for that 100 years. Um, kind of the opposite of what we have now. You mentioned that there was a profusion of guns into the country mm-hmm. around major wars. Um, why don't we focus on World War II? Why would that have been a catalyst for a profusion of firearms in this country? Well, a couple of things happened. Um, you know, when we have these big wars worldwide, literally millions of GIs went into uniform that never had before. And all the countries on both sides went into massive weapons production and included, of course, guns, tens of millions of guns produced and cranking them out, production facilities, uh, changed to them and gun manufacturers greatly expanding. So at the end of the war, then we had a couple different things. Uh, the armies always then contract to a fraction of, of their wartime. Um, and so we had countries in deep war debt um, and with just huge masses of tens of millions of guns wanting to sell them off. So we had all the surplus sold at cut rate prices, and most of them came to America because most of the rest of the world was broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, European, very poor market. They weren't buying much of anything. And America was as affluent country, our post-war boom. So they all came here. 1948 is this huge war where they start coming in. So that's the first thing, a huge influx of guns um, at really cheap prices. Um, and then second is, we've got all these gun manufacturers now who have you know, quadrupled or 10 times that amount of production facilities. Uh, they want to keep making these. Um, and so now they need an ongoing market and they start marketing that. 
And they've got a great market because you literally have millions of GIs who come back to the war. Many of them from cities and suburbs had never held or, or you know, used a gun before, and now we're kind of into them. So they're interested. So there's a market, there's somebody marketing to them. Boom, you have all these people buying guns. Fast forward to a 1959 poll, I think it is, of Americans mm-hmm. about firearms. And what what did uh, opinions bear in 1959? It's kind of shocking to me because uh, they asked, that's the last baseline data before the big gun control act in the 60s. Um, and they asked, uh, should we outlaw all handguns? Uh, we never even bring up the question today, it would be ridiculous. Nearly two to one said yes. 60% said yes, 30, I believe 36, no, and 4%, uh, no answer, or it might be 34 and 6%. But basically two to one wanted to rid the country of all handguns except for law enforcement. So that includes at that point, um, uh, over, the country, over half the country had guns. So even uh, gun, many gun owners were wanting to get rid of all handguns, all pistols, revolvers, gone. You know, we have come, and that's where gun control was starting with that massive lead, the gun control movement starting in the 60s, mm-hmm. that massive lead, and has just been thrashed and beaten back from nearly, uh, you know, the opposite end zone, all the way across the field, back outside the stadium, out to the parking lot, lost everything, monumental. I, it, it, I would rank it, and I've talked to a lot of historians about this, is potentially the worst, least effective uh movement, political movement in modern American history or in American history. Mm. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with journalist Dave Cullen. Uh, He uh, may be known to you as the author of several books that followed uh, major school shootings in this country. He's working on a national magazine piece right now after the attack in Texas uh, that looks at really the arc of the gun control movement. And you a reference there, a big gun control act in the 1960s. Do I have it right that the Kennedy assassination is part of the reason for this? Yeah, that was the big impetus. I mean, it was already brewing, and you had uh, Senator Dodd from Connecticut, the father of Chris Dodd, um, who was wanting to do this with antecedents back to his FBI days, but uh, wanted to do this. That's what kicked it off and made it sort of like possible to happen. They started working on the law. It took uh, five years. It kept failing because the fledgling NRA was tiny then, 750,000 people, but very sort of like uh, politically astute and effective, kept beating it. Um, It kept losing his his third bill in 1968, looked dead again. Then the Martin Luther King assassination, um, it passed through the Senate, but appeared to die in the House in committee. Then the RFK um, assassination was kind of like the finally last thing. They, uh, the House passed it uh, out of committee the next day. And then they added some things to it. Um, and then LBJ passed it later that year. It took all three assassinations to make this happen. But they stripped the main element out of it, uh, which was it started as this idea for getting rid of handguns. That's what most of the country wanted. Didn't even end up in the, la- in the bill. They did some things like get rid of mail order, um, especially from overseas. The uh, the rifle that Oswald used for Kennedy yes. uh, actually came mail order from more of these World War II referees still coming from from Italy. So they did crack down on that. But, you know, so again, you have like 
you have this pattern of reacting to like a specific item from the last big horrible thing instead of you know solving the larger problem, which at that point was this particularly uh, handguns. This notion of gun control, um, I wonder if you'd help us unpack that term, control, mm-hmm. and to what extent, uh, because you've called the movement, uh, well, un- unsuccessful, challenged, mm-hmm. uh, to say the least. Do you mm-hmm. think that th- that word control has something to do with it? It is a big part to do with it. You know, um, who the hell wants to be controlled? Right. I mean, think about yourself. I'm, I'm sure the people who were starting it were thinking in terms of controlling these, this equipment, this, you know, this thing in your hand. But of course, the people who own the guns, half the country, thought of it as, you know, controlling me, and, and rightly so, because you know, if you're affecting, you, you're controlling this item that's near and dear to my heart, then you're controlling my behavior as well too. So they heard that, and this is also in the Cold War era where, you know, the collectivists, communists were, you know, all about control. We were like, that was our arch enemy of people controlling us, liberty, freedom, all, it's antithetical to all those ideas. And um, the, 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 the gun community had never been organized in any, uh, in any profound way. Again, the NRA, that tiny organization under a million people, they were very active, but most gun owners were not involved and frankly didn't care and often were supporting um, the ideas. Once that happened, um, the NRA tripled its mem- membership in a couple of years and really radicalized uh, its side and got them behind their message of they're coming for our guns, they're doing horrible things, they want to control us. Um, it's sort of like the worst labeling that that ever happened, which finally in the last 10 to 15 years, um, everyone in the gun control movement has seen the light and dropped that label. For some reason, we in the media sort of haven't picked up on that and keep calling it. But mm. We need to stop. There indeed has been this shift away from the idea of gun control towards what I hear uh, is talk about safety, children, families. Um, We see that in organizations formed after Sandy Hook, like Moms Demand Action, Gifford's Law Center. So has that shift resulted in change? Yes, very much so. And and by the way, uh, Moms Demand Action, Shannon Watts initially uh, called it Moms Demand Action for Gun Control. Um, and was alerted very quickly um, that, that, you know, that term is poisonous and change it. And she did um, because the change was just coming about that. So, it, you know, these organizations have been profoundly more effective and a couple things changed. Um, the, the name, um, which was sort of poisoning, we stopped poisoning the well. Um, the way of looking at it, gun safety actually is... Um, it's not just a name change, it's a different mindset. So not just Hmm. thinking in terms of how do we regulate this object, but how do we make the whole environment more safe? And so you can come up with things like probably the most important thing um, Giffords has has come up with is these violence intervention programs, which I won't get into, but you should Google if you're interested in this, like for inner city um, gun violence, which is 90% of the gun deaths, people of color in inner cities, um, these are extremely effective. They needed funding. That's just getting going. Um, 200 million just for this year was passed in a larger bill that most people have never even heard of. Most important thing they're doing. So they, they're making big change. Uh, sorry, I'm missing a couple of things. The other thing that they're doing, as you mentioned, is different people leading the efforts in Sandy Hook. Hmm. Uh, the two big people are Shannon Watts and Gabby Giffords, women, moms, um, 
uh, survivors and you've got the Parkland kids, the targets of this, not people like Mike Bloomberg. Um, and then finally, the, the other really crucial thing is for the first time, um, their side is really pulling together. There have been gun control groups um, since the early 70s, but they were small ragtag groups, poorly organized um, and not working together. So you have the NRA, this tiny minority that consistently but extremely well organized and militant kept beating the massive majority that was poorly organized for the last 50 years. Finally, since Sandy Hook, we have the two major organizations, Moms Merge to Become Every Town and Gifford's Courage, are huge, bigger than anything we've had before. Mm. Every town is now 8 million people, bigger than the NRAs, 5 million, never had anything like that. Um, and they've been having huge successes at the state level and also, crucially, getting politicians, at least half of the political class, finally to quit running away and addressing this problem. Most of the Democratic Party, some Republicans, now fighting for gun safety. So they finally have a team. The gun safety people finally have a team on the field, both legislators and activists that had never happened before. So there's finally sort of like some an equivalent. And actually, it's much stronger in our right. yeah, fighting back. Journalist Dave Cullen, he's the author of Columbine and Parkland, and he is working on a national magazine piece about the themes we've been touching on today. When we come back, housing solutions don't always lead to resolution. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. South Central Colorado could become the world's largest international dark sky reserve, protecting some 4,200 square miles of starry nights. This is done with lighting management plans. The main purpose is to mitigate light pollution. So making sure that light is pointed downwards instead of emanating into the sky. The story and a photo of the Milky Way over Southern Colorado are at CPR.org. Colorado's in the midst of a housing crunch, a pandemic, an opioid crisis, all of which add to and complicate homelessness. Look no further than downtown Denver, where residents have tried to stop people from sleeping on the streets around Union Station on the 16th Street Mall. The city has housed some of those folks in hotels, but not everyone likes that solution. Denverite's Kyle Harris finds some downtown residents want people experiencing homelessness to be moved out of the city center, even if they've found temporary shelter. Kyle, welcome back to the show. Hi, Ryan. Uh, tell us what you're finding in downtown Denver. Well, there are two big questions right now about the city center. One, who is it for and who gets pushed out? There have been homeless shelters and service providers in the area for a long time. Many people have slept on Denver's downtown streets. Since the economy crashed in the 1980s and boosters started trying to bring the city back, there's been a lot of redevelopment, real estate speculation, and a ton of new housing downtown. Many of the people I spoke with who are living in luxury condos and apartments, they say they've moved in from the suburbs and out of state in the last 10 or 15 years, many just before the pandemic. And they don't have a strong sense of the history of the area, but they were promised like first class luxury Denver living, all the wonders the city has to offer, culture, nature, world class dining, all of that. But I suspect these folks don't feel they're getting a luxury experience once they step outside. 
Yeah, these new residents, they they also see people sleeping on the streets. People are using drugs, relieving themselves on the sidewalk and shouting into the air. And when they see that, they get disturbed. And of course, these are all the same things that have been going on downtown off and on for years. And this is also happening all across the country. Talk more about the forces at play. Well, homelessness is way up. So are drug overdoses. And we're in a pandemic with, you know, as you said, there's an opioid epidemic. Colorado has a shortage of mental health services and inpatient drug treatment centers. And we're also kind of in the middle of a housing crisis. So to meet demand for homes, Denver right now needs to build about 50,000 new affordable homes and over 100,000 market rate homes. That's according to developers I've spoken to. And all that leaves the poorest people in the city figuring out where to put their head at night. For many, downtown is the safest option. It's close to many of the services that actually do exist. And the city indeed is trying to shelter these folks, right? Absolutely. So the Department of Housing Stability, which also goes by HOST, just completed its second housing surge. That's where HOST got hundreds of unhoused people into permanent, stable housing. But that is far from enough. There are also some temporary solutions that Mayor Michael Hancock's administration has embraced. Those include, you know, the safe outdoor spaces, um, sanctioned camps and church parking lots and other places through the city, and also hotels like Aloft Downtown Denver, which are housing people who are vulnerable to COVID-19. Yeah, tell us about Aloft and how the city's been using it. Aloft is a hotel. It's at the core of downtown Denver. It's near the Colorado Convention Center, the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, and also the Central Business District. So early on in the pandemic, Denver had signed a contract with uh, this company, JBK Hotels, to lease 140 rooms in the building for temporary shelter. Those were for unhoused people who are particularly vulnerable to the virus. Mm. This would keep them out of group shelters where they'd be at high risk of catching COVID and also out of encampments where they'd be living without many of the, the resources uh, that are not available on the streets. Who are some of these high risk people? Say more about them. These are the same people who are eligible for vaccines before many others. These are older people, people who have health issues that make COVID extra dangerous for them. Some have diabetes or heart disease. Others have compromised immune systems. Here's Angie Nelson of the Department of Housing Stability speaking to city council. Many guests at the Aloft in particular use wheelchairs or walkers for mobility, utilize oxygen tanks, or have other severe health conditions. Um, they're either age 65 and older or have an underlying health condition as defined by the CDC as making them more vulnerable to COVID. And so these folks at higher risk get shelter. Uh, what's controversial about that? Well, so in notes I've received about this issue, some people have been calling these unhoused residents pretty nasty names like scum, cripples, degenerates. Uh, these unhoused people have a lot of hatred aimed at them. And some critics of the program, they really don't think government has an obligation to fund the existence of what they call, quote unquote, unproductive members of society, which is hardly how people who are living at a loft view themselves. How much does this like hotel-based program cost? Well, so far around $16 million. That covers $95 per guest per night and $25 per person for three meals a day, along with security and other costs. The contract extension would cover those services through the end of the year. Well, I gather that there are groups organizing against this approach. 
There sure are. There are members of the Upper Downtown Neighborhood Association, which is called Updona, and residents of the luxury spire condos. These groups say that residents of a loft are ruining their neighborhood with public drug use, catcalling, defecation, and increasing the risk of sexual harassment and assault mm. because a handful of the residents are registered sex offenders. Physician Sue Townsend, who's an Updona member, had the following to say. Clearly, low barrier crisis housing is a necessary part of the host program, and the FEMA pandemic dollars may have been useful to help protect people at high risk of dying from COVID. However, I do not support renewing the lease at the Aloft Hotel to continue to provide these crisis services. With the combination of mental health issues, trash, violent crime, and drug use that the neighborhood is experiencing as a result of this ongoing temporary plan, renewing its lease seems unwise and problematic. But Angie Nelson of Host says blaming the issues in the area on Aloft residents is misguided. Here's what she told counsel. There's an assumption that anyone else experiencing homelessness in the vicinity of that area or anyone seen using substances in the vicinity of that area, oh, that must be attributable to the aloft. That mm -hmm. must be an aloft guest. And so we've, in our conversations, been, been trying to talk with this group around, um, you know, how that perception is, is not accurate. Randall Loeb, who's a longtime housing activist and an aloft resident, agreed. It is not necessarily true either that the people who are living here are contributing to drug trafficking, being a, a nuisance or socially deviant in their behaviors. Okay, well, so to unpack a bit of what we've heard there, uh, you have the physician and downtown resident Sue Townsend saying a loft was created, this program at a loft was created at a very specific time, and that time has passed. Meanwhile, you hear, gosh, lots of things are being blamed on Aloft residents that may not actually be them. Indeed, it was created for people at risk of COVID-19. So how does the pandemic play into all this? Updona co-founder and vice president Lisa Pope notes Governor Jared Polis declared back in summer of 2021 that the emergency phase of the pandemic was over. So at the time, he lifted mask ordinances and ended social distancing. She wonders why the city would keep this kind of shelter in place. Mm -hmm. but, I mean, of course, COVID is not over. No, it's not. Correct. Hospitalizations are up. COVID spreading fast again. The state itself is taking action and increasing some restrictions. Here's host Angie Nelson. Our case rates are rising to the point where a state health order regarding masks and our shelters was just reinstated so that uh, we can provide protection for those who are vulnerable. Our public health orders are intact. And as she tells it, that makes keeping a loft intact necessary, too. I guess fundamentally, Kyle, are shelters like the one at a loft working? Well, host, the housing department says yes. A loft, one of just four hotels that the city's made available for a total of 563 individual rooms. Of the people who've stayed in the hotels, 343 have been moved into permanent housing, and 70 of those were from a loft. Resident Randall Loeb has said a loft saved people's lives and generally improved conditions in downtown. Here's what he said to city council. The fact is that it is well managed with case management and acute care for people and the atmosphere in this building is safe and sound. And without it, I dare say that a number of people would be out there in the alleys in many places where businesses are and where things are awry. 
Meanwhile, those who live in the more luxurious facilities downtown have expressed once again that uh, their quality of life once they step out their door is reduced. So given these tensions, do you have any sense of how city council is going to move forward, vote on this? Right now, the Finance and Governance Committee has looked at it, and the members of that committee were largely supportive or silent. Hmm. Council member Chris Hines, he was the one who actually called the bill to be discussed at committee, but he was out sick. Council member Amanda Sawyer, she's raised a few concerns expressed by residents, but she also said she was basically satisfied with host's answers. Council member Robin Kanich said Updona, the, the neighborhood group's call to reduce the number of shelter beds downtown, will ultimately backfire and could lead to more people on the streets. She said unsheltered homelessness and drug use have been a part of downtown for years and that it's a mistake to blame those issues on the existence of housing. What's next? Well, the committee voted to push the issue on to full council, mm. and it's likely going to be voted on in the next few weeks. It's possible that some of the members might raise questions and concerns as they hear more from the neighborhood group and other residents. But nobody on council is denying that the city has a massive problem with unsheltered homelessness and needs every bed, every room, and every home it can get. The question is which communities will ultimately take people in. I think what's fascinating about this story, Kyle, is that we often think of finding housing as the be-all, end-all solution to homelessness. And yet, even when you find housing for folks, the tensions, the debate continues. It is wild and surprising. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's my colleague from Denverite, Kyle Harris. We'll link to more of our reporting on homelessness and housing in today's podcast at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. And our show continues in just a bit with a landmark school desegregation case in the San Luis Valley that was won, then almost lost to history. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. You may think of Colorado as the place where the deer and the antelope play, but the American antelope is not an antelope at all. It's the pronghorn, whose closest relative is the giraffe. Pronghorn have white bands across the throat, white fur on the rump and belly, and forked horns they shed every year. You may see them in wide open spaces across Colorado, or you may not, because pronghorn are fast, sprinting at more than 50 miles an hour. The world's second fastest land animal, they're built for speed. Light bones, hollow hair, and for cardiovascular superiority, a large windpipe, heart, and lungs. They are not, however, faster than a speeding bullet. Hunters once sold them by the wagon load, and by the 1940s, they were nearly extinct. But thanks to wildlife management, today more than 70,000 pronghorn roam the American West. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Sheets and Giggles. Now, a moment in state and U.S. history nearly lost to time. In 1912, Alamosa was home to two schools, the Northside School, which served white children, and the Mexican Preparatory School across the tracks. Francisco Maestas was a railroad worker who lived a few blocks away from the Northside School. He wanted to enroll his son Miguel there but the district refused. They said Miguel had to attend the Mexican school instead. Francisco sued and won in what is the earliest recorded Mexican-American desegregation case. 
This case was largely forgotten until a group of historians found it, wrote an article, and worked to memorialize it. Ruben Donato, Jared Hansen, Gonzalo Guzman, and Martin Gonzalez are members of the Maestas Case Committee. My colleague Carla Jimenez asked Donato how events unfolded after Maestas' son was turned away. The uh, father, Francisco, was not, you know, very happy that that had happened. So he went back and started to question why that was so. So he spoke, I guess, with other people about the idea that his son could not go to his uh, neighborhood school because they had moved to a house on the white side of town. And from there, that's where the community, I think, started to organize and started to make requests and find out yeah, why they could not go to the regular school. At, at that point, they started to do some organization efforts. Uh, they petitioned the school board uh, with, their, with their case, and they boycotted the school for a time. They took their kids out, um, and, and actually that brought some blowback on them for, for blaming them for not giving their kids an education. They petitioned the state school board, state superintendent. And when you say they took their kids out, they took their kids out of Out the... of school, out of, out, of, out of school entirely, because they were like, we, we should be able to go to the Northside school where that's closest to our house, where the white students go. And, and so they, they, they boycotted the school for a period of time. So the community really gathered around to take these actions. And, and actually a, a different plaintiff whose child was also denied the opportunity to go to that school had been working with the community and had talked to local lawyers about bringing a, a lawsuit. But the local lawyer said it probably wasn't, wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until the Maestas family started working through this and, and working with the community that they were then able to talk with other people in the, in the area. They worked with their Catholic church and, and, and actually someone in the, in the church connected them with a lawyer in Denver that enabled them to, to bring a lawsuit. And they raised money from the community to bring the lawsuit. And so from, from being denied admission, they went through a lot of steps to try to create change and eventually brought the lawsuit. Yeah, the process took... Uh more than a little bit of time. It took a couple of years plus. Uh, and the community involvement wasn't just in Alamosa. The community involvement was the whole Hispanic community in Canales County and Alamosa County. So, uh, you know, it was, it was quite a community effort. And I, I think, I believe personally that in the background you had the SPMDTU, the Sociedad Protectiva Mutual de los Trabajadores Unidos was in the background providing some impetus into the whole process and some guidance, in fact. Uh, the, the standout in my mind was, uh, was uh, Mr. Roybal, who was the teacher at the Mexican school. He seems to have been the kingpin to much of the organizational efforts. In, in addition to that, I just want to add that uh, you're right, with uh, Mr. Roybal was, was key. But in one of their meetings... They were having a conversation and Father Montel was there. And Father Montel at that point basically said, you know, I know a bright lawyer in Denver and uh, he may be interested and he may take on this case. And so from there, they started to raise money in the community. So slowly what was happening is people were donating to a fund to, uh, to fund a lawyer, if you will, to take on this case. So Father Montel came to Denver, talked to a young attorney, Raymond Sullivan, and he agreed to it. And he looked into the case, and that's when 
things began legally. And it's important to remember that many of the Mexican-Americans in the San Luis Valley grew up there, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about a culture that goes back long before the country showed up. We're talking about a culture that goes back from northern New Mexico uh, three, four, five hundred years. So what's unique about the valley is that the connections of us Hispanics in the valley isn't really to Mexico, to the truth, nor is it to Spain. We were so isolated and have still, for that matter, still very isolated, uh, relatively speaking, that uh, it was a unique culture uh, amongst uh, amongst ourselves. So they were almost being treated as, you know, second-class citizens in an area that they had already grown up in. Correct. I mean, uh, we're not talking about uh, a period of time that's all that distant from the Mexican-American War. So in 1848... All of a sudden, we became, quote, unquote, American citizens. But uh, as, uh, as circumstances presented themselves, we're still second-class citizens, even though that declaration was made in, under the treaty. Yeah, that's what was unique about this case was that we are talking about individuals who were U.S. citizens. So we're very clear in this article that in future cases, the Mexican government became involved with uh, the Mexican consulate, and they kind of helped along, and they kind of monitored. In this situation, they didn't do that. The Mexican government didn't get involved because these were U.S. citizens. Gonzalo, what were some of the sources you were looking at as you all were researching more about this case? You mentioned that this could have been one of the the earliest uh, documented desegregation cases, and and I just want to clarify that... um, that would just be pertaining to what we currently know about the Mexican-American community, because there are cases dealing with the Black community, um, the Asian-American community, and the Indigenous community, you know, that are from the 1800s and uh, early uh, the 1900s as well. So, so I just want to clarify that when we talk about earliest, are kind of setting a timeline that this case is really specifically talking about um, the the Mexican-American experience. Mm -hmm. I don't want to sort of dismiss or unacknowledge or not um, take into account the other histories and the other fights for educational justice from our brothers and sisters from those other communities. So I just want to name that. Absolutely. The genesis of this case sort of begins with, you know, a newspaper. So actually, the story of this case doesn't begin in Colorado. It begins in Wyoming. Wyoming and Colorado have particularly regarding Mexican-Americans, have always sort of been in conversation with one another about uh, just the experiences, but also the educational matters. But it starts with a newspaper account. I believe it was called Happenings in Colorado, and I think it was like page 10 of a newspaper in Wyoming that referenced this school strike that was happening in um, southern Colorado. Yeah, so that was one of the sources that we looked at, and it led to a whole bunch of other sources as well. Martin, you're a retired district judge for the San Luis Valley, and yet you had never heard of this case before. Did learning about this case teach you more about your community? Well, yes, I'm retired district judge. I held the position that Judge Holbrook, who made the decision, I was the first Hispanic appointed to that very position more than 100 years after the case. But more importantly to your question, I'm also fifth generation to the Valley. And I'm also, if I go back and trace my roots, I go back to the 1700s in, in, uh, in New Mexico. I think what's unique about uh, this particular case in terms of my community is that how progressive 
the struggle was perceived by by my uh, by my culture by my people at a time when I think uh, most people would have assumed and perhaps wrongly assumed uh, that education wasn't a priority, but rather working in the fields, if you will, or working the farms or, or whatever might be. But education clearly was a priority, and it was a priority to the point where the community felt strongly enough to do school walkouts, if you will, to raise funds, to petition not only local officials but state officials. And so I think what it taught me is that uh, even though I'm a, a student and, and uh, a product of the 60s, uh, by no means did we invent a struggle for equality. Gonzalo, you're an assistant professor at McAllister College. How did you sort of reignite interest uh, among other academics? Ruben Donato has been a mentor of mine. You know, he's written three books, um, the latest one, uh, The Other American Dilemma, that he co-authored with Jared, but, you know, he has been a mentor of mine and I saw this case referenced just obscurely in this Wyoming newspaper. And I know that I never heard about it. And it just seemed of great interest of like, I I couldn't believe this was happening in Colorado, just given um, prior to then what we've known about uh, the overwhelmingly discussion of desegregation and segregation of the Mexican-American community has been really centered in a border state, Southwest narrative, really localized mostly in California and Texas. So I was really unsure about this, but this seemed important. And I decided to contact Ruben Donato about this to be like, hey, have you ever heard of this case? And I thought if anyone would know, it would be someone that I would consider one of the co-founders of the entire field of Mexican-American educational history. Yeah, once we, I got the material is that I, I couldn't believe that, uh, that this case actually happened in 1914. Because when you look at this particular field, it really starts around 1930 with a Del Rio case in Texas and then the Lemon Grove case, the Alvarez versus Lemon Grove, uh, 1931 in California. So those two cases are the ones that really kind of began, the early cases that began the, the field regarding school segregation and desegregation. But for this case to have taken place, number one, in the San Luis Valley, number two, in 1914, I thought, why don't we know about this? This is incredible. And Jared and I started to talk about this. And Jared has a law degree, a former lawyer. And we started to have a, a serious discussion about the implications of this case. So the three of us started to have some serious discussions about this case and what it meant. And Jared and I took a trip to Alamosa and we did some research, looked at numerous newspapers and so on. I mean, we tried to go through every place that may have information regarding this case. So it was basically the newspapers that had the information where we found a lot of this stuff. And then from there, Jared and I came back and we went through the Rocky Mountain News, the Denver Post. We went to the U.S. Supreme Court Library. So we try to do as much research as possible, churn every rock, if you will, on this case. And we were shocked that there were no references to this case. And we thought, this is this is incredible. Why has nobody heard about this case? Why hasn't it been referenced? You would think 
that somebody at Adams State College, when you think about Adams State, it was, I think, um, it opened its doors in the mid-1920s. And, uh, and you would think that by the 1930s or 40s, that some student or some professor would have done something on this case, would have written something, either a master's thesis or a major paper. We couldn't find any of that stuff. So from there, we knew that this was going to be very unique. And then from there, we started to write the paper. Part of contacting Ruben to sort of verify the historical significance was also contacting the Alamosa courthouse and particularly the clerk and Judge Martin because uh, the actual ruling of the case was printed at the front page of one of the newspapers. And so um, part of reaching out was actually contacting Alam- the Alamosa courthouse and getting hold of the actual legal documents that documented this case. Ruben, you brought up a good question that I want to ask Martin. Why was this case then never referenced <laughs> afterward, you know, in any sort of case law? Well, because it never got appealed. In, in my profession, the knowledge of a particular case is generally disseminated when it gets appealed and it gets written about, it gets argued, and uh, a precedent of value hopefully is created as a result of that litigation. In this case, uh, it was not appealed, although there were some indications that the school board intended to appeal. We could find, I could find no reference to an actual appeal. And so it stayed on a local level, if you will, in the legal sense of the matter. And so um, I, I, it, it just kind of got buried in the, uh, the sands of the legal profession in the valley over time, I think. One of the ways the Maestas Case Committee is trying to commemorate this chapter of history is through a statue. Can you describe that statue for us? Well, the statue was commissioned by the Commemoration Committee. It was com- commissioned uh, by uh, for, for an artist by the name of Sonny Rinaldo uh, Rivera to, uh, to, to do, and we ultimately settled on a relief bigger than life-size, really, and that relief will be placed at the Alamosa Courthouse on October 8th on a permanent display basis. In the context of that process, we decided to do a traveling road piece, if you will, and that road piece right now resides on a temporary basis at the state capitol. And so it, uh, it uh, is our intention to take that traveling road piece from venue to venue for quite some time and to, in that manner, uh, try to drum up some knowledge and some interest about the case and, and educate uh, the general population, certainly, but specifically Hispanics, that there's a history out there that you should recognize it for what it is, and it is an important history that you should keep in mind. Are there any other ways that the Maestas Case Committee is trying to ensure this case will be remembered? In the Journal of Latinos and Education, where this article was uh, published, it's read nationwide. So I would guess and think that this piece is used at many universities throughout the country. I know that it's used at Berkeley and UCLA. I mean, I can start naming the various universities that have taken up this, that uh, it's becoming part of school of education curriculum, if you will. And I was also going to say that at the K-12 level here in Colorado, we're intending to provide some curricular support for teachers who want to give their students exposure to this case and to have them think deeply about this aspect of history in Colorado and and in ways that show the empowerment of the community in Colorado. And and we're hopeful that that will fit well with the new social studies standards that are up for approval by the State Board of Education in the upcoming month or so. 
thank you so much for joining me. You're Thank welcome. You. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. Historians Ruben Donato, Jared Hansen, Gonzalo Guzman, and Martin Gonzalez, members of the Maestas Case Committee, they spoke with our public affairs producer, Carla Jimenez. Summer means swimming for some, but in Denver, there's one popular waterway that's not really safe for swimmers. CPR's Rachel Estabrook explains. We're talking about the South Platte River as it runs right through the middle of Denver. Recently, we got a question about it through Colorado Wonders. Denver had declared a goal to make the South Platte swimmable and fishable by 2020, but... Addressing the swimmable goal has proven to be really challenging. John Novick manages the city health department's water quality monitoring programs. E. coli levels, they really haven't changed despite everything that the city has done. Even though some people do swim in the South Platte in Denver, Novik does not advise it. The problems go back decades. There's kind of this legacy of considering the river to have little value. Everything that was built had its back to the river. People just kind of dumped stuff into the river. That happened in cities across the U.S., but it's gotten better. In Denver, Novik says the city has invested tens of millions of dollars to redevelop parks and trails along the river and to improve water quality. At the same time, though, climate change and more people living in Denver make cleaning up harder. The river is getting warmer and there's less water, which helps dangerous stuff thrive. More extreme weather events also pose a hazard. Alan Vida teaches environmental toxicology at CU Denver. He says the city has improved how it treats wastewater, but a growing risk is surface water runoff. Big storms mean more untreated runoff. Stuff like animal and human waste, fertilizers, feedlots all get into the river. But the city says you can help clean up waste and don't use pesticides right before a storm, for example. At this point, Denver isn't sure if it can make its part of the South Platte swimmable. But it does plan to keep spending to improve the ecosystem. It's just a question of whether the resources are there to keep up with the growing challenges of population and climate change. For now, if you want to take a dip safely, try a reservoir where active monitoring means if it's not safe to swim, the beaches close. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News. Have a question about our state? Ask us at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders, and we may answer it on air and online. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the team that keeps us afloat. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.